From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. We're trying to do this to take better care of patients. Our parents become patients. Our kids become patients. Most of us have either personally or we know of a story where healthcare did not go well for someone. And bringing it down to the idea that we are trying to create better systems and processes to be able to care for someone you may know. That's Tom Walsh talking about the significance of value-based care. We'll hear more from Tom later in the show, but first, a word from our sponsor. Can't make it to New Orleans? Let us simplify the annual conference experience by delivering premier content to your home or office with MGMA 19 Live. This online event includes 12 of our top sessions, as well as three exclusive sessions, all streamed live. Join us for content that can start improving your team's performance right now. For more information, visit mgma.com slash aconline. Our guest today is no stranger to value-based care or to the MGMA community an adjunct professor at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice, an associate professor of community medicine at the University of Tulsa, Tom Walsh is a healthcare consultant with a lengthy clinical career spanning private practice and academic settings. He previously appeared on the podcast after releasing his first value-based care book in partnership with MGMA back in 2017. And he joins us again today now that the second edition has officially hit the shelves. Tom, uh, thanks for joining us today, and, and welcome back to the show. I know you were on the MGMA podcast several years ago, but for our listeners who didn't hear you the first time around, uh, tell them a little bit about your journey in healthcare and what you've been up to lately. Sure. Well, um, thanks for having me, Daniel. I'm really happy to be back and have this opportunity. Um, I got started in healthcare in the early 1990s, but the, the more recent work that I've done. In addition to writing, I uh, teach uh, health policy, uh, public health, and executive education courses at a couple of different uh, universities. Um, those are usually online or hybrid courses, so I'm pretty, I can be pretty mobile. And then I do some consulting, helping universities launch programs to address changes in healthcare, uh, and then organizations that are trying to uh, change the way that their um, work gets done in order to be able to thrive during uh, these kind of changing times. Okay. Now, you're the author of, of a book. We've got the second edition of it, and the name of the book is Navigating to Value-Based Outcomes. Tell us about that. What was the genesis of that? Was this something where you pitched the idea, and how did you put this book together? Yeah, that's a great question. I was um, I had been teaching in um, a healthcare delivery science program at Dartmouth College, and helped launch a similar one at the University of Tulsa. And the courses there, you know, there are courses set up um, that are um, designed to kind of get clinicians and administrators and payers all in the same room. Um, learning a, a shared language, building some shared knowledge, and trying to come at 
um, reforming the way that healthcare gets delivered from all angles. And uh, my role in those programs was often to mentor students as they were doing their final project. And what I heard over and over again was, you know, we, we have a finance class and then we have a, an uh, operations class and we have um, measuring outcome, a course on that. But it, it's really hard to see how this all fits together uh, when we're here in, in a program doing one course after the other. So I decided to try to um, address that by writing a book, not a textbook, but a book that kind of tells some stories from my own experience over the years, um, using these different tools, techniques, and the different knowledge, and try to share some successes and share some failures, hopefully, um, there's a couple couple um, chuckles that people get to have at my expense from the book, but just kind of really make it a real experience. This is the process that we went through um, when we had this idea. These are the steps that we took um, in order to try to implement and then sustain. And as we tried to as we tried to scale beyond one success, uh, what did we run into? So the book's kind of laid out in that order. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I can't wait to get to some of these humorous stories uh, from the book later in our conversation, but I wanted to address just the idea of value-based care first. Um, I think everybody mm-hmm. in healthcare is well aware of it. They're either in the thick of it already or it's something they're contemplating. Um, but your book, it has a tagline, a tagline the value-based revolution is on, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that because we know that it's, it is something that more and more practices um, are adopting, but what do you mean by that? And when you say the revolution is on, where are we sort of in the life cycle of value-based care? Well, uh, those are uh, great questions again, Daniel. Daniel there's, um, I think we're really still early those of us who are in it day to day, it feels like we've been working on these things for decades. But the 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 changes are really just starting, and the 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 need to change the way that we deliver care, the ways that we measure what matters most to patients, the way that um, we we understand the cost of producing um, healthcare, all of that stuff. It, we're in really early days. There are, there are pioneering organizations that have been going at it for a few years now, um, but you know, there's, there's not any place that's been consistently um, trying to deal with value-based payments for, for a decade, right? And, and that's, that's pretty young in an organization. So I, I think it's early, but more and more people are, instead of just talking about it, more and more organizations, uh, providers, practices, payers are taking steps to start doing something about it. One of the um, difficult things about the topic is that there's not even a really uh, well agreed upon definition of what it is. Basically, you know, different depending on the lens you look at healthcare through, it means different things. But whatever your lens, more and more people are taking steps to take action on that rather than to just study it, 
contemplate it or um, you know worry about it. So people are actually taking steps and uh, more and more universities and colleges are developing certificate programs and um, executive education programs, master's degree programs to fill a void where people are wanting more in, more information about these things. Um, and more and more practices are um, taking steps, at least you know, starting small and, and taking steps to move. So it just feels like there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more momentum than there was, um, you know, even back um, in 2010, 2012. You said something really interesting there. You said that we haven't even been able to uh, gain consensus <laughs> on what a definition of value-based care is. Yeah. So since you're one of the authorities on it, having written a book on it and lectured on it, what is your definition of value-based care? Yeah, so I think value-based care means that we're measuring outcomes that matter to patients. That That's the, the key first thing that we're getting at. You know, um, oftentimes, as healthcare providers and healthcare delivery systems, we get caught up in our own administrative and medical outcomes. And that's great, but um, talking with somebody who's diabetic about their A1C level, for example, um, doesn't really catch and for them and doesn't really get at the heart of trying to figure out um, what their needs and wants are in order to be able to take better care of themselves. And when we're not measuring those things, we, are, we just focus on a medical outcome or, the admin, or an administrative outcome, and it disconnects us from actually caring from patients. So the first step is uh, measuring outcomes that matter to patients. The second, second thing that um, is needed for value-based outcome, value-based care, is really being able to understand the cost of caring for patients. And, and the process of that um, is, is not common. You know, 20 years ago, you could count on being able to raise your prices um, consistently year over year, and then reimbursement would follow. It may not go as much as you'd like, but reimbursement climbed too. So you, people didn't really pay attention to the costs of, uh, of producing care. But now margins are smaller and we've got to pay more close attention. And the, the area where healthcare has been lacking in the past is really being able to attribute the, the production costs of caring for a patient. And as we learn more and more about that, that's where we can find more and more opportunities for savings. So measuring outcomes that matter to patients, understanding the cost to produce those. And then if you can make the outcomes go up, while holding costs the same, that's better value. You think of this like a, a, a fraction or a ratio of outcome divided by cost. Um, if you can keep the outcome, the outcomes the same, but bring down the cost, that's better value. The history of healthcare, though, is is rising costs and kind of middling changes with outcomes, except for some uh, really fabulous innovation. So. We've kind of been in a, a low value environment for a few years now. Um, 
and we need to make that make a change. In order to make a change, we need to measure outcomes that matter and look at the cost of producing them. It's not a, a particularly um, smooth tagline, but it's a complicated topic. Exactly, and I think that's the thing, the sticking point for so many people. It is complicated, and where was that light bulb moment for you when you knew that value-based care was the way to go? Was it through a lot of analysis and putting it into practice or walk us through that. When did you make that decision? This was the way for healthcare in America to go. So um, it goes way back. So I started off in healthcare in the early 1990s as a physical therapist. And I went into private practice and um, words like managed care and preferred provider organizations were just starting to emerge out of um, some folks in DC and, and the White House that wanted to reform healthcare. And the senior partners in the group that I was in were nervous. And I thought that that was interesting because when they were recruiting me, they told me that they're the best in the area. Right? And we had ad, ads in the yellow pages that said, we're the best. And my initial thinking was, well, if they're going to pay people, if they're going to pay us based on outcomes, and we have the best outcomes, then we should be excited about this. And that, then it dawned on me that those ads and all of that talk was really bluster. It's like having a sign on, on, on your coffee shop in Rapid City, South Dakota, that says, this is the best coffee in the world. Right. It, it's 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 bright. It's bragging. Right. And so once I realized that um, it's like, well, we need to be able to show our outcomes. And I'm a nerd and I read medical journals. And at, around that time, things like patient reported outcome measures were just becoming popular. And so I typed up um one of those outcome measures for people with spine problems and started giving them to every patient that I saw every day. And I'd stay late at night and, you know, do the math to find averages and, and quickly learned that my average patient was 48. They came in with pain scores, um, high pain scores and low function scores. And I'd see them a few times and the pain would come down, function would go up. I convinced uh, the other members of the clinic to start doing the same thing. Then we had data that showed that we did have good outcomes. Relative to what I was reading in medical journals, our average number of visits, the average change scores were good. So we invited the local reps from the payer organizations to our clinic, had some wine and cheese, and I gave a presentation. So here's our outcomes. We think because these outcomes are better than the stated average that we should be paid more per visit or we should have a bigger um, allotment of, of visits if needed. We should be a preferred provider organization. But if you find some place with better outcomes, you should just work with them. And I made that statement trying to sound bold, but I knew nobody else was handing out those pieces of paper. So we got some nice contracts out of that. We got uh, a contract where we were averaging about seven visits for one particular type of problem. And the, the prescription coming to us was for 12 visits. We then had to get authorization for 12, but then we were only using seven. 
and people and people were being discharged because they were better. Now we could have had them back to play cards or tiddlywinks or do any type of thing, but we were discharging them early because they were better. And so we were saving the insurance company quite a bit. We were losing some potential revenue ourselves, but we were able to negotiate uh, an agreement where we basically a capitated payment before that was a common term for, for eight visits. Um, and our, our little clinic went from one little clinic. Um, we grew uh, very rapidly um, to four larger clinics uh, before I left to, to um, learn more about outcome research and health policy. But so that was really the, the genesis of the idea that, that just getting paid for doing more, it's really hard to distinguish yourself from a competitor other than just basically advertising, marketing. But if somebody was really going to start to look at how I was practicing or how my clinic was, was being run, I didn't want to be caught unaware, get a letter that says over the last year we've been monitoring you and your, your outcomes are not as good as um, we'd like them to be, so we're going to pay you less. I wanted real-time measures that I could pay attention to and know where I stood and I believed that if I had that data, I, I could always get better. And that's the, those three years in the early 90s, um, that's when that story took place. And it kind of set me on a course of not just clinical work, but academic work, um, research, and, and writing. Um, I think it's vital that as... Um, people that are in healthcare, we kind of take some responsibility for addressing the fact that our costs are out of control. Patients go broke trying to get healthcare that they need. Communities with self in communities um, who have who are self-insured um, aren't able to fill potholes and hire teachers, do other things because their premiums are rising so rapidly. So this is a problem that's uh, really taken over part, some aspects of our economy and country. And I think it's those of us that are in it that need to do something about it. Mm -hmm. In your book, you write a good bit about um, the value-based care model and the, the pain points of the payment side of the model and how important it is to get the clinical staff and the administrative staff to all get on the same page, work together here. Um, talk about that relationship and why that's vital to making this payment model and the overall value-based care model work. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a great question. And I, I'll tell a little story that, that that's not in the book. Um, you know, one of the issues that comes up over and over again, we we all hear the term value-based care. We hear different words and nobody really wants to admit that they're not sure what it means. And so when we start meeting with people from um, different sides of the, of the, um, of healthcare, we believe that we're all speaking the same language. For example, um, in one of the programs where I taught, 
um, we had a room full of, of um, students in this executive um, course. Um, there was um, an oncologist, an on a cancer surgeon, and a finance person, both in the same room. And so when we started talking about margins, both of those people knew what margins meant. If you ask them, define margin, they could define it. They said they knew what it was, and they thought everybody else knew what they were thinking. But the cancer surgeon's margins are very different from the finance person's margins. And until we had that conversation, it wasn't obvious that people were thinking different things. But once we had that conversation and we get, here's the way that we're going to use the term, then we can all start working together. But before that, there's a lot of time where the conversation is just throwing words back and forth um, or even past each other. So the first step is really to try to develop some shared knowledge and, and shared language locally. Now, you had mentioned earlier that uh, in your in your book there are some humorous passages. I think you even made the comment that you you may be the butt of the joke or the uh, uh, the the joke uh, side of it. Are there any of those stories you can share with our listeners? Sure, I'll share. I'll share a quick one. It, it, um, we've had some success um, with an improvement project trying to. Um, identify patients who were um, at, a, at a greater extent of suffering due to their anxiety and depression along with their chronic pain complaints. And we had people on staff that could help with that, but we weren't really good at identifying it and, and then linking, them, linking the person up with the staff that was available to help. We were able to address that over a multi-year period and that was um, that emboldened us. And so the next thing that we wanted to do was look at our wait times. We wanted to improve our throughput, and part of that would be decreasing our our wait time, getting patients through quicker. Um, and so we learned about um, third available appointments, a way to measure wait time, a, a kind of a, a newer way of measuring it, and we decided that we were gonna start monitoring that and adjusting schedules um, so that the, the wait times would come down. Um, we thought we'd planned this out brilliantly. We'd done all the background research, we'd met, you know, a bunch of us had met, but the, the first time we started trying to make changes, we pretty much had a revolt on our hands and the revolt came for obvious reasons that we just hadn't looked at. People don't like their schedule being changed without talking to them about it. No, but I wouldn't think so. We had tried, <laughs> right. We had tried to, to just implement these changes that affect people's lives when they can pick up their children, when they're, when they're, you know, all of this stuff um, without consulting the people that would be most affected by it most. And that was um, not funny at the time, but when I look back at it, that's kind of naive and humorous and, and all, of the, um, all of the things that you can say about 
um, not doing it the right way. Right. I When I think about change, you're talking about people not liking their schedules changed. I think as humans, we we get into a groove and I always think of uh, an old record player. It's in that groove playing the song. And if you just, you know, I have, I have a, a cat who uh, <laughs> back in the day would jump up there and knock it off and just drag it across. And you hear that horrible <laughs> screech. And that's sort of internally how many of us feel when we're uh, faced with change. Uh, and so making this transition from fee for service to value-based care, that is a, in many ways, a monumental change. So even though practices and the people who work there can know that this is right for them, they might be a little bit resistant. So what would you advise them then? What are those steps to take to embrace value-based care and embrace the change and move to it? Yeah, I think um, it's a great question. And I I like the record screeching. That's definitely the sound of um, the clinicians um, (laughs) after we try to change their schedule. Um, So that's that's great. So yeah, you're going to run into resistance any any time that you any time that you change. And so the the key things that I've I've come to believe from doing this a number of times, a number of places, um, it's it's good early on to kind of show the big picture and and kind of the the why you know begin with the why, but um, that only seems to go so far. And um, the next kind of layer to it is to really um, take it down to a place where we're we're trying to do this to take better care of patients and patients you know. <laughs> Our parents become patients, our kids become patients, we become patients, and most of us have either personally or we know of a story where um, healthcare did not go well for someone in, a, in sometimes some really distressing ways. So the bringing it down to the idea that we are trying to create better systems and processes to be able to care for um, someone you may know. As mushy as that might sound, that is often the place that brings people together and you get a core team of people that, um, that share that feeling and, and want to work toward things. Then it's a, a process, like I mentioned before, of building the shared knowledge and shared language locally um, to all get on the same page. That's kind of, those are the first steps. Right. And it really does seem like when value-based care is put in place and it's working on all cylinders, that it's a great marriage of both better patient engagement, but also better utilization of the data. And you say something in your book. uh, Let me see if I've got the quote in front of me. It's, you've got to capture the data that matters to patients. And as you well know, and all of our listeners do, there is so much data out there on healthcare, on patients, on all kinds of procedures and processes, almost too much at times. So we really have to boil that down then and figure out what's the data we should be looking at, how do we analyze it? So for the sake of our uh, listeners, 
Give us an idea then, or what are some of those key data points that they need to be looking at and they can access uh, through a value-based care model? Yeah, great question, Daniel. They, so I think the, the, there is, there's too much data, right? There's just, there's too, too much and it's hard to make heads and tails of it sometimes. Um, but we still don't, given that, you'd think we have all of our bases covered, but we don't. We still don't have um, good information in real time about what matters to patients. And the only way that you can get that is to ask. So there are patient-reported outcome measures that are the key to being able to find what matters most and then align a care team to um, you can think of it like um, patient-reported outcomes allow you to observe what matters most. You've got the data right there in front of you when the patients completed the, the survey, whether online or on paper back in the 90s. You are able to observe what matters most, which then allows you very rapidly to orient the care team that's most appropriate for what the patient has helped you understand matters to them. Once that care team is oriented, is it going to, is it going to involve a, a physical therapist and a surgeon, a physical therapist and a social worker? Is it going to involve a nurse and, um, and primary care? Who's, what's that team going to be and, and how are you going to orient that? Then oftentimes there are decisions about treatment options how how are you going to decide with the patient the the course of care that is most aligned with the patient's preferences and their readiness to change if you get if you misdiagnose what's wrong what's most important to the patient or you misdiagnose their treatment preferences or you misdiagnose their readiness to take action on something, you're de you'll delay the process of getting better, which in value-based arrangements you get penalized for. Um, so it's that, that observe what matters most, orient the care team, decide um, upon the best course of treatment based on preferences and readiness, and then taking action the best tools for doing that start with patient reported outcomes and they're underutilized. From your research, have you either received feedback directly or through practices of what patients think about uh, their, their primary care physician or their, their healthcare team and its move to value-based care? Have you seen results there? Yeah, so that's another great question. Um, as part of a team of, of researchers um, who wanted to understand um, how well healthcare providers were understanding what mattered to, to patients. So we went through a long process of doing many dozens of interviews and then dozens more focus groups. And we were able to arrive at a set of questions um, that we then, you know, through statistical analysis, we're able to whittle down to three questions. Um, the first one is, um, 
how well did your did your provider do understanding what matters most to you? And on a five point question, and how well did um, the provider integrate that um, information into the care plan going forward? Three questions like that. Um, we like that because we could text that survey. It's called the collaborate survey. Um, we could we could text that to patients as they were leaving the clinic. You know, how much effort did your pay, did your uh, provider make to understand what matters most to you? Zero is no effort. Four is every effort. They say three. You know, the whole process takes less than thirty seconds. And that data can be made available to the provider right away. And you can look at your average scores over time. And we saw, we've seen remarkable changes in the scores that providers get um, because they understand what's being asked, right? So one orthopedic surgeon in Portland, Maine, her scores on this survey, she was getting scores like, 30% of her patients were giving her top scores, where other people in the clinic had over 85% of their patients were giving them top marks. So she was really way off. Something was really way off. And in the past, I've worked in organizations and we've held classes and done, done webinars and seminars and um, all kinds of things to try to help improve patient engagement, patient communication, the things that are supposed to be necessary to succeed in value-based care. And I don't know if any of those big things made much change. They certainly didn't make as much change as we saw with this one orthopedic surgeon in Portland because we went back six months later and now she's up around 80% of her patients giving her top scores. And I asked, you know, what did you do? How, this is a remarkable improvement. How did you do it? She said, well, now that I know the questions and I know that they're being asked, and one of the questions is how much effort did I make to understand what matters most? So now as patients are leaving, I just say, is there anything else I can do to help under understand what matters most to you? In my academic side, I was like, well, that's almost cheating. But then on a clinical side, you're like, well, isn't that better care? Like the answer to that is going to be important. Right? If the patient says, no, I think you've covered everything, or yeah, there is something now that you mention it, that information is going to um, impact care right away. So um, I think getting the measure right and getting the feedback back to providers um, very rapidly and even at the time um, is, is something that makes a, makes a huge difference. Now, this is totally different, but in researching your okay. background, <laughs> in researching <laughs> your background, I found that you are an ultra marathon runner. Uh, first of all, what in the heck would inspire someone to want to run an ultra marathon in the first place? And two, uh, how is preparing for such a monumental task? How has that prepared you to? navigate through value-based care? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and just so people who know me know that I'm being honest, I haven't done one in a couple of years now. Um, so I'm not currently running them. Okay. Um, but the last, the last one that I did uh, was around the time the, the first edition came out, a 50-mile event. 
um, the Chino Hills in Chino Hills, California. Um, and you're exactly right that um, doing something like that, nobody goes out and runs 50 miles just um, because a government agency told them they have to. And nobody just goes out and does it the next day and feels good doing it. Right. In order to do these things, in order to do something like that well, you have to understand what, what's driving you. And it's good if it's something important. And then you have to break the task down into small chunks. And you do a little chunk and you move to the next and you make that next chunk a little bit bigger than the last. And you try to keep track of the lessons that you learn along the way so that the week when you're running um, 30 miles and you've learned a few things that you don't repeat those same problems, those same things when you're trying to run 90 miles in a week, that there's some way of, of keeping track of the lessons learned as you go. So getting clued in on why you're doing something that's meaningful to you, the local within you, but local context, manageable, but manageable and incremental forward progress, unrelenting forward progress, and then building your capacity to learn and adapt while you're doing things. Those are all lessons that I get from running um, that I use every day with my academic work and consulting work. Tom, author of Navigating to Value-Based Outcomes, thanks so much for sharing these insights today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to MGMA Live for sponsoring today's show. Also, thanks to our guest, Tom Walsh. You can purchase or see a preview of Tom's book, Navigating to Value-Based Outcomes, by going to mgma.com slash navigating. You can also learn any and everything about value-based care at MGMA's annual conference, October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. Did you miss early bird registration? Don't worry, we have you covered. Use the code POD200 while registering and save $200. Visit mgma.com slash bigeasy19 for more information and to register for the conference. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.